This is the good, the Baz, and the ugly. I'm the Baz. Well, that no, I'm Baz. That sounds weird if I go around calling myself the Baz. Anyway, uh, look, this podcast is filled with uncensored interviews with experts in particular fields or real-life stories from people who have inspiring personal tales to tell. It covers various topics and life stories that I've really dug, you know what I mean? And I think you'll dig them too. Just so you know, this podcast is for grown-ups. It may contain adult themes, sexual references, and strong language. Fuck yeah! No, I just wanted to. Sheet! Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. Hold it now, wait, hold it. I know you're gonna dig this. I think the best thing for me to do is to introduce him. What the... What's his name? Baz Ashwami. It's not Baz Ashwami, it's Baz Ashmawi. Welcome to the good, the Baz and the ugly. Coming close to the end of season one, wow... Wow, guys. Wow. Wow, seriously. First season done. We're spanking this podcast. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? I should be very clear. I wouldn't just spank listeners like that. I'd say, is it okay if I spank you? We'll, we'll start with a little one. It's all about consent, John. That's that's what I'm saying, John. John, John, John. John, John. 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 Do you, does anyone call you John? No. Very it's, unsettling. Is it? Is it? Oh, right. So I'm so, you look so insulted. John, John. Because it, it, I work with a lot of other Johns, but you're John, John for sure. Look, uh, all I'm saying is I'm feeling good. We're doing good. Right, socially distance high five team. Woo. That's nice. Doesn't quite work, but whatever. Uh, we're, we're on episode seven. The social dilemma. Or is it? Big question, right? A lot of people, me included, think they might be phonaholics. John, John, phonaholic. Yeah. Yeah. Guilty. Mahi. I'm not. No. Okay. Complete denial there. <laughs> I think actually it's called nomophobia. It, actually, that's not right because nomophobia is the fear of being without your phone. But we're not talking about that. Um. That's not really what we're talking about in this episode. See, what happened is I watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix a few months ago now. And I watched it and I thought about it so much afterwards. It was a good movie, wasn't it? I enjoyed it. It was good. I I liked it. But at the end of it, it left me with this feeling of... uh, I just felt defeated. It, It left me with a very kind of negative feeling. I felt anxiety about the world my children are growing into and how dangerous phones and technology are. And and what what the future digital landscape is going to look like. I was concerned about myself too, regarding becoming addicted to my phone and wasting far too many hours in the toilet. Honestly, sometimes I go in there, I could be 45 minutes. Just any not, toilet? No, any toilet. My, in my own private, in my bathroom, in my own suite. Presently in the random toilet. No, I don't hang around random toilets. Just lo- Okay, that's a different... <laughs> That's a different episode, guys. No, I mean, like, it's a it's a safe spot for me to go to and just lose myself on my phone and spend 45 minutes just looking at Instagram and YouTube clips and, I don't know, nonsense, right? But I lose time. And, it, it, you know, it's the digital matrix. You know, do you, do you get lost in the digital matrix? Yeah, red pill every time. Yeah, anyway. The point is that if you buy everything the social dilemma is saying... <laughs> You're screwed, man. Like, we're screwed. It's not our fault. They're manipulating the shit out of us. Facebook is pimping you and your information out. You are not the client. You are the product. That's scary shit to sell someone. That's what I got from that movie. I was terrified afterwards. So I said, John, John, help me. And what did you say, John, John? Near Real. Near Real. For those of you that don't know, Near Real is an expert in behavioral design. That, for anyone who doesn't know, is a kind of like an intersection of psychology, a little bit of technology, and business. It encompasses user experience, uh, behavioral economics, and just a dash of neuroscience. Right? Very clever. He's the author of Hooked, great book, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Previously, he was a lecturer in marketing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and Design, and he sold two technology companies since 2003. For most of his career, he's worked in the video gaming and advertising industries, where he's learned, applied, and at times rejected, the techniques used to motivate, and more to the point, manipulate users. As an active angel investor, he has put his money where his mouth is by backing habit-forming products he believes will improve lives. Some of his past investments are Eventbrite, we all know Eventbrite, uh, Kahoot, 
uh, Anchor FM, which was acquired by Spotify, uh, Canva, Refresho.io, uh, also acquired by LinkedIn, uh, Worklife, acquired by Cisco. God, it goes on and on and on. He knows his shit. Let me tell you that. He knows his shit. This was a very uplifting, uh, very refreshing conversation. This is that conversation. I was really looking forward to, to chatting to you because I have an incredibly addictive personality. And usually when you think of addiction, you think automatically of the obvious ones, you know, the drink, the drugs, um, sex, that kind of thing. But the digital addiction is, that's a real thing, right? That That's not made no. up. That's a problem. No, it's made up. You believe it's made up? Yeah, it is. Tell me your view on it because I've, I've watched... I've watched, and this is probably, I've watched The Social Dilemma. And when I watched it, for a day or two, I was like really taken back by it. And then after it, I kind of thought, there must be a certain level of accountability. Like if I'm abusing, if I'm abusing my phone and I know I shouldn't be on it as much, it's like going into the pub and blaming the bar for serving me you know, 50 pints of Guinness. Yeah, so I uh, I was interviewed for that movie. I'm actually in the credits at the end. You can see my name. I was in, I've sat down with them uh, in August of 2018 uh, for three hours to do an interview with them. And they didn't include anything I had to say. Why do you think that was? I assume it's because I didn't fit the narrative. That uh, my research is all about um, the the psychology of distraction. And uh, my first book was about how can we use technology to build healthy habits. The book was called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And my second book uh, was called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And uh, I spent five years researching uh, what we can do, knowing that, you know, I understand every trick in the book about how these companies work. I wrote the book. Their tricks are good. These tactics are persuasive. They're not that good you know there's the best metaphor i can give you is did you ever see the movie indiana jones of course yeah of course right so you remember that scene where indiana jones goes out into the bazaar and there's that guy in the in all black and he has two swords and he starts doing all these tricks with the swords you know he starts waving them around very intimidating very scary and then what does indiana jones do he takes out his gun bang shoots the guy and that's exactly what's going on, okay? The, the, these tech companies, they have all this scary stuff with the algorithms and the computer processors and oh, it's so scary. And yet, what do we have? We have the gun that they don't talk about in that movie until the closing credits. Literally, as the credits are rolling is the first time we hear anybody mention, hey, um, how about turning off notifications? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. And what exactly can Mark Zuckerberg do to turn those notifications back on? zero. That's the gun. That's the bang. And so my big beef with the social dilemma, they raised some good points there. I think the, you know, they did everybody a service by raising awareness, but what they did a disservice is the message they preached. And what most people who make money and gain attention from this techno panic are after is that fear sells. And the reason I wasn't including it in the movie is that the psychology of distraction and the research around distraction shows that this is a problem that we can absolutely do something about counter to the narrative of the movie, which basically says, you know, call your politician, let those geniuses do something. Yeah, right. We're going to wait for the politicians to fix this. Seriously. Mm, Uh, It's never going to happen. And why the heck would we wait when there's so much we can do right now? To, to, to take back control. Because I think, I think what it was for me anyway, it was, it was kind of sh- sh- showing a mirror where you kind of go, sometimes people are just slightly in denial that there is any issue. Yet they go to the bathroom and they lock the door and usually something that would take five to 10 minutes and 45 minutes later, they're still sitting there in, in, some, in some YouTube hole. Do you know, like, uh, and you start to see these little signs of things where you think I'm being, I'm being taken advantage, not taken advantage of, I'm letting them take advantage of me. I'm not being accountable for the way, the way I'm acting. But first things first, 
What is your background and why did you fall into this arena of psychology? Yeah, so I've been studying uh, the psychology of habits and distraction uh, for well over a decade. I taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and later at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design as a lecturer in marketing. And uh, I've written two books on this topic. Uh, the first one was published uh, in 2014 uh, called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And my last book, uh, uh, late last year, 2019, uh, about uh, how to manage distraction. The book is called Indistractable. And so, um, yeah, I've been, I've been an advocate for getting the best of technology without letting it get the best of us. And so I am not on the side of the Tristan Harris's of the world in that their message is now, it used, didn't used to be. So Tristan actually spoke before he spoke at TED, before he was on 60 Minutes, he actually spoke at my conference, which was called the Habit Summit years and years ago when he spoke about how we can change technology to fix the bad aspects of technology. And it was wonderful. And then he started getting a lot of attention for, you know, kind of this chicken little attitude that technology is melting our brains, that it's hijacking us, that it's addicting everyone. And this is scientifically bunk. It is not true. Uh, do some people get addicted to technology? Absolutely. Do some people get addicted to drinking too much alcohol? Absolutely. We call those people alcoholics. But you and I both know or Irish. Not, every, not everybody who yeah, exactly. Not everybody who has a pint uh, after work uh, or, or a glass of wine with lunch. Not everyone who has uh, alcohol is an addict, right? Not everyone who has a beer once in a while is an alcoholic. So why do we think that somehow everyone who's on social media is addicted? I'll tell you why. Because we love that narrative. We lap it up. It sells, right? It absolutely sells, which is what's so ironic because the movie is about how these social networks manipulate you. And what the movie is doing is manipulating you, right? With those three evil algorithms sitting in that room, you know, pushing the buttons and doing as if you have zero control and the voodoo doll, that, that boy who's sitting there listless and he's being, you know, the, the, the algorithms do whatever they want with him. It's perpetuating this myth that there's nothing we can do. And that is bullshit. Explain it to me, like I can't ask you to sum up two books now, but, but the basis of, of what you've learned and what, what you tell people. Here's the thing. So first we need to start with what is distraction. And we don't need to just talk about technology as distraction because there have been all kinds of distractions since time immemorial. Uh, Plato, 2,500 years before Facebook, before the iPhone, before the internet, the Greek philosopher Plato, talked about akrasia, the tendency that we have to do things against our better judgment. Plato was talking about how distracting the world was 2,500 years ago. And of course, every generation, every generation has this moral panic about whatever technology uh, is freaking everyone out, right? When, when I was a kid, it was rap music. And before that, it was heavy metal. And before that, it was video games. And it was television and radio, the newspaper, novels. Even, I don't know if you remember this scene in the, in the movie, not to dwell too much on the, on the social drama movie. Do you remember there's that scene in the movie where Tristan Harris talks about how the bicycle, nobody ever freaked out about the bicycle. Do you remember that where he says yeah. that? The irony of that is if they would have just Googled that, I mean, it just goes to show you how poorly researched that movie was. If they would have taken five minutes to Google that, that he, they would have seen he didn't know what he was talking about because people absolutely freaked out when the bicycle came out. They thought that this would lead to women being lascivious. They said it caused mental illness in people. Riding bicycles made people mentally ill. It is literally the same script people are using right now, yet again, to talk about the latest technology. It happens every single time. You know what happens though? People adapt and they adopt. Paul Virilio, the philosopher said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. There is no way to have a technology with such far-reaching consequences without having bad stuff happen, without having shipwrecks. But what do we do? Did we stop sailing ships? No. Why do you never hear of shipwrecks anymore? Almost never do you hear of a shipwreck. Why? It's not because we stopped sailing ships. We made ships better, right? We adapted and we adopted. We adapted our behaviors. We learned how to sail ships better. And then we used technology. We adopted technology to fix the bad aspects of the last generation of technology. And that is exactly what we are doing today. I can see yeah. the benefits, right? I can see all the benefits, but I kind of know 90s bars, right? I know what I was like in the 90s and I know the 2020s bars. And I kind of go, I think I was a little bit more creative 
or I didn't have to work as hard. I wasn't as lost in my own head. Like now I get five minutes alone. I'm like, okay, well, I've got to look at my phone, obviously. I've got to, you know, jump onto YouTube yeah. or I've got to, so, you know, check social media or, you know, you know. Well, yeah, let's dive into distraction. What does this actually mean? Because this word is actually really, really telling. So uh, the best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. So what is the opposite of distraction? Most people say the opposite of distraction is focus, but it's not focus. Okay. The opposite of distraction is traction. That if you look at the entomology of the word, they both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you're going to do. Things that you do with intent, things that move you towards your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. The opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do. Anything that is not in accordance with your values that pulls you further away from becoming the person you want to become. So why is this so important? This is important for two reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction. Anything can be a distraction. My daily routine before I wrote this book and embarked on five years of research to do it would be I would sit down at my desk and I would say, okay, today I'm not going to procrastinate. I'm going to work on that big project I've been putting off. Nothing's going to get in my way. Here I go. I'm going to get started right now. But first, let me check some email. Yeah. Right? Let me just scroll that Slack channel for a quick. Let me just do that thing on my to-do list just to get started. Right? And what I didn't realize is that that is the most dangerous form of distraction, the distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. So anything can become a distraction. Now, conversely, anything can be traction. So there is nothing wrong with you checking Facebook or YouTube or Netflix or playing video games or whatever it is you want to do. As long as you do it on your schedule and according to your values, not the tech companies. Why is it that watching football on TV is somehow morally superior to playing a video game? Rubbish. As long as you do it on your schedule and according to your values, there's nothing wrong with it. Mm. And so the way we know the difference between traction and distraction is forethought, is intent. If it's not the technology itself that's the problem, it's the fact that we're using it whenever the tech makers want us to use it, as opposed to using it on our schedule. It's funny you say all that because I was reading a book a while back, uh, a long time ago, book. it's called The Chimp Paradox. And there's certain, there's certain things that we go through where we feel uncomfortable or workload, and we're, we're built to try and distract ourselves. Like there's a part of our psyche that just doesn't want to do the work, doesn't want to sit bored, doesn't want to be a certain way. And you will do anything other than, and it does take, it does take some focus to kind of realign yourself. So what are the tools? Help me be better. Yeah, this is something that, that's brought up a lot is that, you know, our brains have not evolved for 200,000 years. And how can we be expected to do something that our species has not been evolved to do? The sugar is too delicious. Therefore, we're all clinically obese. And the video games are so entertaining. How can we possibly stop? Come on. There are all kinds of things that we do, that we learn to do as adults. It's part of growing up. You know, the natural thing to do is to defecate wherever you want. That's natural. But human beings, we potty train. We learn to pee and poo in the right place and time, not whenever we feel like it. And guess what? It's no different with our technology. We need to learn how to use it appropriately. Is it hard? Yes. How many things in life are worth having that don't require some effort? It's part of being a grown-up. I love your attitude. So tell me this. Tell me, tell me what other kind of... Yeah. Where do you begin with it? Like, what, yeah. what are people fighting against and what are the main issues that they're coming up against? Okay, so we talked about traction and distraction, yeah. right? Now we have to ask ourselves, well, what prompts us to these, to these, these paths of either traction or distraction? We have what we call triggers. We have external triggers. External triggers are the things in our outside environment, the usual suspects, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that can lead us towards traction or distraction this is what we tend to blame, and it can be a source of distraction, but that is not the leading cause of the problem. If we really want to get to the source of the problem, the number one cause of why we procrastinate, why we get distracted, why we don't do what we say we're going to do, the number one cause is not what is happening outside of us, it is what is happening inside of us. 
we call these internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. Boredom, loneliness, uncertainty, fatigue, anxiety, stress. This is the root cause. Are they always negative? Always negative. In fact, everything we do, we now know that this idea of Freud's pleasure principle that we used to think, most people still believe that uh, motivation is about carrots and sticks, right? The pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Jeremy Bentham said this, Freud said this. Neurologically speaking, it is not true. That neurologically speaking, everything you do, you only do for one reason. And that one reason is the desire to escape discomfort. Everything you do. Even the pursuit of pleasurable sensations, wanting, craving, lusting, desire, all of these things are psychologically destabilizing. So what that means, therefore, Baz, is that time management requires pain management. Time management requires pain management because whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, any distraction, anytime we go off track and do something we didn't intend to do, it is always because of an impulse control problem. It is an emotion regulation problem. That is where we have to start. I, I, it's, it's very refreshing to hear because all I've heard people say is that, you know, social media or the internet is the problem. Very few people say that, you know, it's our problem and grow up a bit. It's basically what you're saying though, right? Because you hear this thing oh, of yes. dopamine. They make dopamine, dopamine out oh to be like God. cocaine, right? So like, yeah. like one little hit of dopamine and that's me, I'm done. Uh, like it wasn't my fault, I was on dopamine. As soon as you hear somebody say that term, write them off. You know right away they have no idea what they're talking about. Dopamine is not cocaine, okay? Dopamine gets squirted every time you give someone a hug, when you learn the piano, when you play tennis, when you watch television. When you avoid social media and actually have a good time, you get dopamine. Exactly. It's ridiculous. Whenever you hear somebody say, oh, you're addicted to the dopamine, the dopamine, the dopamine, ugh. It's just, just, it's ridiculous. They don't know the science at all. It's, it's completely uh, just blaming other stuff as opposed to, uh, figuring out how to claim responsibility for this. Now, that being said, these companies absolutely take advantage of your internal triggers. If you are looking for distraction, it is easier than ever to find. No, no doubt about that. That technology is more pervasive and more persuasive than ever before. But that doesn't mean we're powerless. And in fact, I would argue, wait a minute, is what we want, do we want these products to be less engaging. Hey, um, Netflix, your shows are way too entertaining. Please make them boring. Uh, Apple, your phones are way too user-friendly. Can you please make them harder to use? No, that's ridiculous. We want these products to be engaging. And there's never going to be a law that tells these companies to make their products less good. <laughs> we don't want that. That's not a problem. That's progress. So we have to understand, look, they are absolutely capitalizing on our desire to escape discomfort, as is every product or service. You think, you know, they, in, the, they, they, in the movie, they talked about how, you know, these, these, the problem is the business model. Monetizing attention and turning it into money from advertisers. Well, how exactly do you think the news is funded? Yeah. They all make money the same way. They sell your attention to advertisers. Now, does that doesn't mean those businesses are evil. It just means we as consumers have to understand that their incentive is to keep us clicking, to keep us watching, to keep us engaged. That is how they make money. Nir, are some people more susceptible? And I, I know like everyone's in charge of themselves, but, but we say like, if you are quite lonely or if you, uh, you are a depressed person, are you more likely to, to be susceptible to, to, kind of, 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 to the, this element of, of social media and so that's a terrific question. I believe that there are two classifications of protected people. First is children, that there are lots of things in society that we do not let children do. They are a protected class. I wouldn't let my 12-year-old daughter walk into a bar and order a gin and tonic. I wouldn't let her go gambling. I wouldn't let her, frankly, I wouldn't let her go into a library and just read any book because there are lots of books that a 12-year-old little girl should not read until she's ready. So this idea that our iPads should be iNannies is ridiculous. We have to moderate the content, any form of content, television, books, magazines, anything our children consume, we have to, as parents, take responsibility and make sure that they're not consuming you know, crap, that, they're, that, that, that it is age-appropriate content. And the second category, I think, this is where I do support legislation, 
is people who are pathologically addicted. And this isn't, oh, I like to use it a lot. I'm talking about people who have the pathology of an addiction. You know, we, we, today we call everything addictive. Uh, my wife received a box from this company, DSW. It's a shoe company. And written on the box was, careful, addictive contents inside. <laughs> right? Like We use this medical term of addiction and just toss it around. I think it's incredibly disrespectful to people who are actually suffering from this disease. Just because you like checking WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever, you're not addicted to it unless you really have this pathology. And some people do, just like we talked about, single digit percentages of the population are addicted to alcohol. They're alcoholics, but that doesn't mean everybody is. And so we need to differentiate that it, for the vast majority of people, it's not an addiction, it's a distraction. But for those who are pathologically addicted, who are particularly susceptible, I think this is where there is room for legislation that these companies know how much we are using. And I think there are ways that they could help those people who really do uh, uh, need assistance, uh, you know, need special protection like children, like people who are pathologically addicted. Yeah. You talk about triggers, action, rewards. How, how, how do these all work together? So we kind of know what triggers are, I presume. Yeah, so triggers, we have the internal triggers, we have the external triggers. Uh, then the, the action is the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. So this is where this would be the, uh, the scroll of the feed on Facebook, uh, the push of the play button on YouTube, for example. Uh, then comes the variable reward. And this uses this, uh, this uh, idea of what's called an intermittent reinforcement. Uh, so anytime there's uncertainty, uh, that causes us to engage and focus. So when we think about um, uh, certainly on social media, you know, the, 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 the scroll of the feed or what's next in the video is, involves variability. It's uh, in all sorts of things offline as well. If you think about what makes a book interesting, right? We want to know what's going to happen. How is the, how is the, the novel going to end? Uh, we want you know, when we think about news, the first three letters of news is N-E-W, new. We want to know what's, what happened that we don't know about. It's all about that variability. When we watch spectator sports, you know, when we watch a ball bounce around a pitch, it's all about the variability. Where's the ball going to go? Who's going to win the game? So variable rewards are not something that is new to, uh, to social media or to the internet. Uh, social, uh, variable rewards are in all sorts of products that are interesting and engaging. There's some apps that I feel like, I don't, it's got to sound weird, that have a bigger hold over me, right? I'll give you an example, right? My fitness pal, right? I go through these stages of, you know, getting into my fitness and keeping an eye on what I'm eating. And that's, that's great that, you know, I delete it sometimes and then I might download it again. Instagram, I can't delete Instagram. I've got all my followers on Instagram and, uh, you know, people I'm connected to and the same with Facebook, even Spotify. If I was to delete Spotify, I got all my track lists for the last 10 years. Like, I can't leave, can I? Do you, know, do you know, I feel like, like I'm, I'm, I'm handcuffed in with these people to a certain extent. Is that, is that planned or that's just a, a good social media app? Oh, it's very much planned. It's very much designed. The question is, does this product serve you or are you serving it? The customer is not getting what they intended out of the product. If it, of course, harms them in any way, people are not puppets on the string, right? That when it comes to these tech products, these are not the same as cigarettes, you know, or as people say, oh, it's, it's an addictive drug. Oh, come on. We're not injecting Instagram. We're not freebasing Facebook. We're not snorting Snapchat here. Oh, no, you haven't, met my, you haven't met my sister, honestly. <laughs> she was snorting Facebook during the pandemic so bad she had to just cold turkey it. She just deleted it. She was like, I had to get off it. And what happened? Feels much better. She feels much better. <laughs> yeah. Ta-da! So where is this evidence that we're hopelessly addicted? Yeah. See, this is the Indiana Jones shooting the gun. Install, you know, uninstall this crap. We don't need it. And I'm an advocate for it. If it doesn't serve you, bravo, get rid of it. But let's not complain and say we're powerless because what that does, it leads people to think that, that it, to believe what's called learned helplessness. And when people think, oh, there's nothing I can do, the algorithms, it's so addictive. You know what happens? They stop trying. Yeah, I think I, I, it's funny. I had this analogy of I have a, a twin nephew and nieces and they were both put in the cot at the same time. And the little guy was sat there, he had his little bottle with him, and he was just kind of like, well, fuck it, that's it, I'm trapped. And while he was sitting there just kind of giving up, his sister was, was getting these cushions and teddies and creating this wedge or this kind of bridge that she could climb out, oh, out of the cot. And I just thought- that it's, I love this kid. It's such a great definition of 
of of a personality where one person is like, oh, look, oh, I'm helpless, and the other one is like, no, I'm fucking getting out of here. Like, I'm gonna fix yeah, this. And yeah. um, you you mentioned time management. Can you talk to me more about time management? Because because uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you mean. Yeah. So we talked about that first step of mastering the internal triggers, and I will tell you that. You know, I, I, at first I believed this rhetoric. I believed that the technology was the problem. And so I actually got rid of it all at one point. I did, you know, I took one of these digital detoxes. I, I got myself this $12 uh, phone off of Alibaba with no apps on it. I got myself a word processor from the 1990s with no internet connection. I thought, oh great, you know, now I have no internet connection, no apps. Now I'll finally be able to do what I say I'm going to do. I'm not gonna get distracted anymore except for the fact that you see there was that book on my bookcase that um, I, I really should, there was this, I think there's just this chapter I need to just read real quick or, you know, my desk, oh my goodness, my desk is such a mess here. Let me just clean it up and the trash needs to be taken out and I probably could go fold the laundry and I kept getting distracted. You know why? Because I didn't deal with the reason I was looking to escape the discomfort. So that has to be step number one. Time management is pain management. We have to learn the tactics that we can use to overcome, to master these uncomfortable emotional states. Because if we don't, we'll always get distracted by one thing or another. So that's the first step. The second step is to make time for traction by acknowledging that you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Let me say that again. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you don't have anything planned, what did you get distracted from, <laughs> right? So most people don't keep any sort of a schedule. Yeah. And then they go through their days as I used to. I mean, I'm patient zero here. I've never had a lot of self-control. I've never had a, a lot of willpower. That is why I wrote this book. I wanted to unlock how some people out there seem to always do what they say they're going to do. How is it that, you know, I admire these people who they, they said they were going to work out, they work out. They say they're going to eat healthy, they eat healthy. They say they're going to go to a meeting and show up on time, they're there. I wanted to be that kind of person. See, I write, I'm a creative, and you know, yeah. I've, I've learned over the years that I have to do that. I have to put my phone away and look at a clock and go, I'm not budging from this table for two hours or three hours. Amen. But those days where I don't have a, a to-do list, they can just, hours go by and nothing has happened. So I completely get what you're saying regarding that, you know? Yeah, and you're way ahead of the curve here because most people, they say they take the, the wrong approach, which I, you don't, which is they say, I'm a creative. The muse can strike at any moment. I can't make a schedule for myself because I just, I need to be open to inspiration. And those are the creatives that never make diddly. They don't produce because the way you produce is to get your butt in that chair from X moment to X to Y moment. That's when the inspiration strikes. You have to plan this time or someone is going to plan it for you. There's a reason we call it paying attention. We pay attention just like we pay with dollars and cents. And you wouldn't just, you know, give out 20 pound bills to whoever wants it. You would be judicious about how you pay your money. You know those moments where usually in your downtime, you know, people have this fear, like we mentioned, of being in their own head, boredom, um, need to be entertained, constantly stimulated, where usually they would be times where creativity would come out of that kind of, you know, analyzing your thoughts and your feelings and maybe, I don't know, maybe if you're creative, maybe you write a poem or you write some lyrics or maybe you pick up a guitar. Is that suffering, do you think, because of, because of being untrained? This is a fantastic point, Baz, that I think part of the, the disservice that the self-help community has done over the past several years is to tell people that feeling bad is bad. That is a real disservice that if you think about it, you know, how many books have happiness in the title or some kind of goal that we all, we all are supposed to expect to be contented all the time. And that is just silly. That in fact, if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it would not make sense to have a species that was happy and contented all the time. Because if there was ever such a species, if there, if there was ever a group of homo sapiens who were perfectly happy and contented always, our ancestors probably would have killed and eaten them. <laughs> you want a species to crave, to desire, to invent. That is what pushes us forward. So it's not that feeling bad is bad. That in fact, these internal triggers, we can respond to them in two ways. We can either try to escape them because we can't deal with them. So we flee them with 
turning on the television, opening Instagram, doing a hundred other things, drinking a bottle, who knows what we could do to escape that discomfort. Or we can use it like rocket fuel. We can use those internal triggers to lead us towards traction rather than distraction. That makes a lot of sense because as well, there's nothing nicer than being knee deep in shit at one stage and overcoming it, right? Isn't that the, the human spirit? We all love the underdog. We all love that person who does that. There's a famous Irish comedian here and he, he, he Tommy Tiernan, and he used to say, God, if you were just going around happy all the time, people would hate you. They'd just go, oh, here's that happy fucker now. You know, like it's it just not, it's not natural. Tell me this, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you must have amazing self-discipline, do you? No, 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 the opposite. So I used to be clinically obese. I'm 42 and I'm in the best shape of my life because for the first time I actually exercise when I say I will. I mean, this, this is why I wrote the book. I have never had good self-control and willpower. Uh, you know, in fact, even just saying those words kind of makes the hair on my, the back of my neck stand up because, you know, this is the kind of stuff I heard as a, as a fat guy, uh, just have some self-control. What's the problem? You know, just use some more willpower, stop eating so much. And, you know, easy for you to say, but, but I never have had a lot of will control, uh, willpower and self-control. And part of the problem was that I, I fell into the spiral of blaming the food, right? It's, McDonald's, that's why I'm overweight, right? It's these things outside of me. And of course, it wasn't until I stopped doing that and understood why I was overeating. You know, people who are clinically obese, they don't overeat because they're hungry. I will tell you, as a former person who was clinically obese, personally, I didn't overeat because I was hungry. I overate, not even because the food was that delicious. I was overeating because I was bored. I was lonely. I was sh feeling shame for overeating. Do you, do you think if you have a habit that's gone on for years, or right? I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example, right? It, mathematically, from a, from a young age, I was very bad at maths, okay? Not bad at maths, um, I was fine at maths until I got to a certain age. And then I think a teacher put something in my head where I started to believe, do you know what? I'm, just, I'm a creative, I'm good with English and language, and I'm not good with mathematics. And it wasn't until someone told me, how long the fuck have you been telling yourself that? Because what happens is you identify as that person. Now, I'd been like that for years and years and yeah. years. And then one day I decided just to do little things like, you know, add up the shopping as I'm walking around. And next thing, you know, it starts to evolve. Do you think if you've had the habit of being a certain way for a long time, it's much harder to break it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the first step is to understand which self-image is serving us and which is hurting us. Let me give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, there was this very popular notion in the psychology community around a concept that is called ego depletion. And ego depletion uh, says that we run out of willpower, that willpower is a depletable resource, kind of like gas in a gas tank. And there was one particular psychologist that did a bunch of studies on this and, you know, did these experiments that appeared to show that you run out of this limited resource of willpower. And even if you didn't know the term ego depletion, uh, a lot of us act accordingly. So, you know, many years ago, before I started this line of research, I would come home from work and I would say, boy, I'm spent, right? I have no willpower left. Give me that pint of ice cream. I'm going to sit on this couch and watch television because I'm, I'm spent. I have no willpower left. Well, as is oftentimes the case in the social sciences, when a study sounds too good to be true, we replicate it. We run it again. And so there was a researcher by the name of Carol Dweck at Stanford, uh, who is a phenomenal researcher. She wrote a great book called Mindset that you, might, you may have read. And she did these studies where she found that these, these studies did not replicate, that ego depletion, w w the studies didn't find that it really existed. Turns out it was, it was bogus science, except, except in one group of people that there were, in fact, one group of people who really did exhibit this phenomenon of ego depletion. They really did run out of willpower like gas in a gas tank. And those people, and only those people, were the people who believed that willpower was a limited resource. Wow. That's it. Everybody else didn't run out of willpower. And so this is a great example of, this, of these self-defeating beliefs and so just like somebody told you one day, you know, Baz, who told you this silly story that you're bad at math? I'd love to do the same for you with what you said at the very beginning of the interview, that you have an addictive personality. You believe that as well. I don't think you have it. Unless, unless, unless no. yeah. you believe you have it. That makes a lot of sense. Like, it's funny you say that because 
I don't drink and I, I don't party or do drugs or anything like that. And I've never, I never had a problem giving up anything, right? Cigarettes I found hard, but I think that was a physical thing. I str- it's, you know, that's what the one I struggle with. But there's an emptiness sometimes, I think, that comes. It, I, 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 the best example, I had a friend who's a shopaholic. And if you went into her wardrobe, the whole wardrobe was just clothes with the label still on them. Like she hadn't, she would go into town, and this is before the internet, she would go into town and just buy clothes and, and, you know, never take the labels off. And now, and I think part of the appeal of, say, an unboxing video, I'm a sneakerhead, right, so I collect sneakers, is that anticipation of watching someone open a box and see it, you know, that's the clincher. Once you actually, you know, you order the trainers, they come in the post, you open the box, it's all, all the high. But as soon as they arrive and you have them, all of a sudden it's a sugar rush of pleasure. And I think that's what happens, that, that there's a, there's a, you get addicted to the, the waiting and the anticipation of these things. I think some people are more prone to it. I've noticed I have done things over the years where I've thought that was excessive. You know, it just no, certain I, things. There are certainly people who, uh, suffer from the pathology of addiction. Now, the comorbidity with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder is very, very high. That's the kind of people who really do have the pathology of an addiction. It is a disease. It is not, I like it a lot. And so what I would challenge you to consider, and this, I'm not saying that addiction isn't real. Addiction is very, very real, but it is a disease that affects a very small percentage of the population. Uh, just like you say, you know, people say, oh, I have OCD because I like to do the dishes. No, you don't have OCD. That's a disease. That is a pathology. Real OCD is a terrible affliction. And so the same goes with addiction. It is a real pathology. The problem is when we say we have something yeah, we- and we don't, we act accordingly. Yeah. Well, might as well. You know, we actually know this is a real effect. This actually is, is real. It's called the what the hell effect. The what the hell effect happens if you're on a diet. And then, uh, you know, uh, you're doing great. You have a very healthy uh, breakfast, a very healthy lunch. And then at dinner, somebody says, hey, have a piece of chocolate cake. And you say, okay, I'll just have one bite. And then you say, ah, what the hell? I already broke my diet for the day. Let me finish the rest of the cake and order another one. Are you spying on me near? Because it really feels like you might be. (laughs) It's funny. I used to go to these, I'd have these meetings in London and they'd be big meetings, you know, as a TV presenter, you'd be nervous going to some of them. And I used to listen to (laughs) 90s hip hop songs like like Puff Daddy, Mo Money and, and Biggie and stuff like this. Walking in, I used to listen to it because I, I thought that I have to transform my mindset walking into this meeting where I feel like I'm an elevated version of myself who's uber yes. confident and uber a certain oh, wow. way. And then I would walk in and honestly, I would have a swag about me. I would be kind of like rocking it. And yes, because I, I told myself, this is the way you're going to, I was manifesting it. It would start to happen. I love it. I love it. I'm so glad you mentioned this because our self, we can, we can adopt the self-image that serves us. So just as we need to disavow these silly notions that many people have that, you know, I have a short attention span. I have an addictive personality. I have this thing, this limitation. Just as we need to dis- disavow those things that don't serve us, we can adopt, just as you said, these monikers, these identities that help us be better. And this is exactly why my book is titled Indistractable indistractable sounds like indestructible. It's an identity. It's who you are. It's a superpower. And and let me give you, you know, this is why I'm so optimistic. This is why I don't believe these chicken little naysayers that say, oh, technology's hijacking your brain. It's all evil. It's addictive, blah, blah, blah. Because we've been here before. I know we've been here before. I remember as a kid, I grew up in the 1980s. And I remember when I was a kid, we had ashtrays in our living room. My parents didn't smoke. And yet we had ashtrays. You remember this, bro. We're about the same age. You remember? We had ashtrays everywhere in our house. Our house was filled with cigarettes, but that was the difference with my house. But go on. The reason we had that was because when you came over to someone's house, or sorry, I should say when someone came over to our house back then, they just expected to light up a cigarette in our living room, right? That was just customary. And if you didn't have an ashtray, that was very strange. Everybody had ashtrays in their living room. Can you imagine if someone walked into someone's living room? If you went to see a, a friend and you just lit up a cigarette in their living room, that would be unconscionable today, right? Yeah. But what changed? 
what happened? Was there ever a law that says you can't smoke in someone's living room? No, not that I know of. There's never been such a law. What changed was we adopted what we call social antibodies. Social antibodies is when society inoculates itself from unhealthy behavior. So what happened? One day, my mom threw away the ashtrays. And when a friend came over and lit up a cigarette, she said, oh, I'm so sorry. We are non-smokers. If you'd like to smoke, if you'd be so kind as to go outside. And, you know, this woman got really offended. <gasps> You're going to make me go outside to smoke a cigarette, right? That was so different. That was so weird. Of course, today, that's common practice. You, of course, would not smoke in someone's living room with at least not asking if you could do that. Yeah. So what happened was that people started calling themselves something else. There was a new moniker, a new identity. We are non-smokers. And that's exactly what we have to do with our technology is to say to ourselves, we are indistractable. And you know what? Maybe that involves a little bit strange behaviors. You know what? I don't respond to every text message in 30 seconds. I'm not constantly on WhatsApp. I make a schedule for my day. I know how strange is that? It requires us to be a little bit different, a, diff a little bit weird from the mainstream in order to do our part to inoculate society so that we can all become indistractable. Do you know what I find stressful? You know when you open up a WhatsApp message and you know it does that tick thing and you know they see that it does that tick thing and then they're going, he hasn't replied. And I feel this, this pressure to reply, but it's nonsense, isn't it? You've just kind of got to go, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't play that game. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and of course, nothing's going to happen if you don't reply within five minutes, right? The world's not going to stop spinning. And when people understand that, look, this, yeah, I do things that are a little bit odd. Is it any more odd than a person who's a vegetarian that has an unusual diet or a person who's a devout Muslim and wears a hijab? Is that so different? I mean, it's unusual, but that's their identity. That's who they are. And so by having this identity as saying, look, I am indistractable. This is how I live my life. This is how we can can help others also to see this new way of being. Man, I love you. I just think you're the best. Oh, you've got a girl. Honestly, <laughs> you've got such a great uh, If just just to ask, if you were to give like a couple of tips, you know, just things to, you know, I, I know it's just uh, it's down to everyone else's responsibility to do. But if you were to give them steers on things of taking maybe a little bit of accountability and control back, sure. what, what would they be? Yeah, so these are the four strategies. So tactics are what we do. Strategy is why we do it. And the strategy is actually more important. So here are the four steps. Number one, we talked about mastering the internal triggers, understanding what are those emotional drivers to distraction. That's the most important step. Number two, making time for traction. Those, those triggers are all emotional things, loneliness, right. um, boredom, all those. Okay, gotcha. Exactly. There's uncomfortable emotions. The second step is making time for traction, right? Turning our values into time, having that on a schedule. The third step is to hack back the external triggers. So we all know that these companies are hacking our attention. To hack means to gain unauthorized access to something, right? A computer hacker would hack into a bank account. These tech companies, the media companies, are hacking our attention. They want to gain as much time uh, that we'll give them. But that doesn't mean we can't hack back. And so the third step is to take a few minutes, change the notification settings on your phone. Two-thirds of people with a smartphone, two-thirds, never change the notification settings. Really? I, I'm sitting here going, really? And I know I haven't changed them. So, like, <laughs> There's some wonderful tools that you can use, ironically enough, technology to help us overcome the distraction caused by technology. For example, everybody's iPhone and Android phone comes built in with this feature called do not disturb while driving. It's wonderful. If you don't use it, learn how to use it. Here's what you do. You push one button and if someone calls or texts you when this feature is on, they get an automatic message that says, I can't talk right now, but if this is urgent, text me with the word urgent. So if it really is, oh my God, so important, you have to call me right now, your house is burning down, they will text the word urgent and then the call will come through. So these tools are already built in, they're free, they're inside your phone right now, we just have to start using them in order to hack back our technology. And again, there's nothing these tech companies can do once we start using these techniques. So not only hacking back our phone, our computer, there's all kinds of other distractions in our life. You know, what about meetings? How many of us have to attend these ridiculous time-wasting meetings? Or what about our kids? You know, many of us are working from home today. Our we love them to death, but our kids can be incredible sources of distraction. So we can hack back those distractions as well. I, I walk through every single one of these types of distractions. Hack them with a slipper, usually is what I hack them with. 
<laughs> exactly. Go, go 80s on them. The fourth and final step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And so this is where, again, we can use technology to block out tech distraction. So there are all kinds of tools out there. There's this app I use almost every single day uh, called Forest. That it's this base, very basic little app that basically what you do is you open up this app and you, uh, you see this little virtual tree, okay? This little virtual tree on your screen. And you type in how much time you want to do focus work. So when I'm doing my writing, I type in, let's say, 45 minutes of time. I push this button that says plant. And this cute little virtual tree is planted on my screen. Now, if I pick up the phone and I do anything with it, that cute little virtual tree gets chopped down. Oh. I don't want to be a virtual tree murderer. So no. it's enough of a reminder. It's a pact I make with myself. Nope, I don't want to touch my phone right now. I want to stay focused. I want to stay indistractable. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are thousands of free tools out there that you can use to, to prevent distraction by making these types of pacts. So that's it. Master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs. Those are the four big strategies. Everything else is tactics. Near honesty, it's like splashing fresh water on your face. It's just so good to hear someone talk like this because I think a lot of us, especially at the moment, um, allow ourselves to fall into that mindset of just thinking, oh, it's not my fault, and it's just, you know, it's the big companies. It's just brilliant to hear you you talk about it. I'm going to devour your books. I'm going to chew through them. I can't wait to get stuck into them all. Um, Near, thanks so much, man. I love you. Thank you so much for that. And um, that was really, really fascinating. You know. Anytime. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. No, you were brilliant. You're absolutely brilliant. Um, I'll let the guys say goodbye to you as well because I know they'll want to. It was great. Yeah, that was brilliant. Take care of yourself and I'll talk to you soon, yeah? Likewise. Take care. Bye, 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 bye. Look at you two sucking up to my friend, Nier. I'm joking. He's our friend. He's great, though, isn't he? My God. Uh, If you get a chance to read Indistractable, I highly recommend it. Actually, we're going to put a link in the the footnotes. Ah, then that's all sorted. It's all there. What do I think? What do I think? Okay, look. I have internal desires and goals and an image of the person I would like to be, but I'm not there yet. In other words, I often have moments where I kind of feel like, I don't know, I hate that I'm always on my phone or regarding work. I wish I was better at time management sometimes, you know, while understanding those labels, it helps me observe and understand what I'm doing. Self-labeling often creates an excuse for my personal development. My goal should be to reach a better and improved version of myself. After all, I'm my best resource, right? Self-labeling, it can just trigger a kind of defensive mechanism in your head. And you go, poor me, but I'm helpless. It's just who I am. I can't change that. But bullshit, bullshit. bullshit. Don't do that to yourself. Just get out of your own way. Don't do that. I've done it. I'm not preaching, but I am. Don't do that. Just get out of your own way. Meet the new you. You can do anything, man. You really can. You can you can you can do anything. But sometimes we just we have a version of ourselves, a, a, a kind of image of ourselves. And it's not always accurate. You just haven't proved it to yourself yet. I think that's what it is. Jeez, man, I'm preaching. I'm going to that's all I got. Now, don't slow clap me. That's so patronizing, please. Okay, listen, listen. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast as much as we did. Uh, as usual, you can get us on uh, social media. You can get us at Facebook, uh, Twitter. Uh, Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> get us at Twitter. You can get us at Twitter or, or the, the Facebook or the Instagram. Uh, 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 my tag is at be a shmoey be a shmoey and you can let me know how you're enjoying the podcast or you can just leave a message for john john who's very particular about his name um whatever it takes um that's kind of it for this week we'll be back next tuesday and uh until then sincerely good luck in the cup <laughs> <laughs>